welcome to Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about the people behind today's virology headlines. With the annual American Society of Virology meeting coming in mid-July, we are talking with virologists, graduate students, and postdoctoral researchers who will be attending the meeting. Thank you very much for talking with us today. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Diana Tognazzoli. I am originally from Brazil. I moved to the States about 20 years ago uh, because of I, I got married and we decided to raise a family in the U.S. And um, I have had many careers before. I was a high school teacher. I was a concierge. And now I am a virologist. I grew up in a family, um, a big family. I'm used to having a big Latin family where everybody knows what you're doing all the time. <laughs> and they give you a lot of love and a lot of advice. Um, and so the move to the U.S. was um, I moved here just with my husband um, and now we have children, of course. But um, it was it was a big change for me um, to not be close to family all the time. Great, great. And how did you switch over to virology? So between those three different careers, what kind of led you to getting into the path of virology? Well, um, I really always did love science. Um, since I was very little, I loved science. I was very, I remember watching, I always loved science fiction. And I remember watching um, The X-Files and, and seeing Dana Scully do all those cool things, you know? And uh, it's funny because I just recently found out that that actually they have a name for that. It's called the, the Scully effect, uh, that a lot of women, yeah, it is crazy, uh, but a lot of women in that age group ended up going into science because they were so fascinated by what she did. And, and I was definitely one of them. Uh, but I did those careers because um, I, once I finished high school in Brazil, I really had to join the workforce. Um, and so I couldn't go to school at that time. And so I kind of pushed it off. And when I moved to the U.S., I started going to school and I asked myself, I said, if I could, you know, do anything, what would you do? And, and it was science. And so I got my bachelor's in biology. And in the process, I did some undergraduate research and I, I worked in an infectious disease lab for a little bit in ecology. And that wasn't for me. And uh, I, I ended up in this virology lab and I just fell in love with it. Oh, cool, cool. And um, why don't you tell us a little bit, so coming from another country, can you tell us a little bit about sort of, you know, where you grew up, your ancestry, uh, things like that? You mentioned that you have a large, sort of like large family. What was that like? Yeah, so um, I grew up in a low mid-level income family in Brazil. I actually grew up in Sao Paulo, which is the largest city in the Southern Hemisphere. It's just you know, like New York. And um, my mom was a single mother. And so we lived with uh, my grandmother and my four aunts. Um, and, and that was very interesting. It was a very interesting dynamics, as you can imagine, all those women together. And we all had, they all had very strong personalities. So I definitely grew up seeing very strong, independent women, um, you know, around me at all times. And, um, but so I had this big family and this big family was mostly my um, grandmother's side. She was, um, she was actually from the countryside uh, in Brazil and um, she moved to the city by herself, uh, worked for a few years at, you know, restaurants and then ended up getting married and, and, you know, having my mom and my aunts. And so, um, but it was interesting, like I said, because 
once my aunt started getting married, then I had this cousins, and then we also had family in the countryside. And to this day, I have contact with cousins, third removed, <laughs> that know my kids' names and send me happy birthday and so on. So it was it was a very good experience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and now thinking back or thinking towards your sort of science career, how did you end up sort of picking or getting to the labs that you ended up in? So what, what was it that sort of attracted you to those particular labs? Um, like I said, I, when I was younger, when I was in high school, I thought I was going, I wanted to go to medical school. Um, because again, I, I was really sad on the idea that I wanted to be a pathologist. Um, all Dana Scully going on doing autopsies and things. But um, and so when I got to actually taking classes in molecular side, it just, it, it really just called to me. It was when I took virology and I realized, and you know, they were explaining how influenza um, is able to hijack specific pieces of molecules, right? And, and I'm, I'm not being broad here because I know this is, you know, um, not necessarily meant for scientists, but I was fascinated. I said, what do you mean the virus can do that? What do you mean? And they're not even alive. And so it just really just, it was the epitome of coolness of how this, you know, uh, these things worked. So that's really what got me. I remember the exact moment when my professor explained about this hijacking of, uh, you know, molecules by influenza. And I said, wow, this is crazy. I need to learn more about this. Cool, cool. And then how did you get into the grad, the lab that you're doing your PhD in right now? So I actually, um, when I was an undergraduate, I went in there and I asked the professor, I knocked at her door and said, I really like viruses. Can I please do undergraduate research? And she said, sure. And, and then I started and I did undergraduate research for a year and a half. And then when I left, I graduated because I had been in school forever. It felt like forever. Um, so I went to teach high school. And while I was teaching high school, I realized that I missed being on research. And so I spoke with that professor again, and I said, I really want to come back. And, and that's where I am now. Oh, cool, cool. And uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about that research? So uh, the kind of viruses that you work on, and then sort of like the different, um, I guess, techniques, the types of experiments that you've been doing. So um, in our lab, we study Epstein-Barr virus. That's one of uh, the herpes viruses, and it's the herpes virus that causes mono. Um, and so it's, a lot of people don't know, but 95% of the world's population has it. So it's ubiquitous. And um, when in my program, in my PhD program, um, we are expected as part of our tests, right, to advance the candidacy, uh, you are expected to come up with your proposal with your dissertation work. And so um, I started thinking a lot about how viruses, you know, particularly herpes viruses stay in the body forever. Once you get it, you get it, right? And I started thinking of other things that come up later in life, because if they're in your body forever, could there be things that they're doing through the span of your life, through your lifetime that are just slowly evolving into something else? And it was right around the time that I came across some papers talking about how, um, um, Epstein-Barr virus or EBV uh, was associated with multiple sclerosis. And so I kind of went into that pathway of thinking about interactions between herpes viruses and neurodegenerative diseases. Uh, and, and in my department, I had a professor that had a cell line, right? Those cells that, that we can keep growing multiple times in the lab. It was routinely used to study these interactions between, um, you know, study Parkinson's it was a good cell line because it's not a neuronal cell line that is very hard to keep and so on. And I thought, 
okay, so could this cell line be used to study this possible interactions between herpes and um, neurodegenerative diseases? And that's how I came up in our project. So basically I use these cells that are uh, similar to neuronal cells and I um, expose them to the virus and I see if processes that are important for neurodegenerative diseases, if they are affected. So um, currently what I do is, so some of the things I look at are, um, for example, inflammation, inflammatory processes. So we know neurodegenerative diseases are associated with um, aging because you end up having this low levels of inflammation as the immune system um, you know, starts malfunctioning or just doesn't work as well because you're, you're getting older. And so um, some preliminary data that I have looked at, just looking really at exposing these cells to the virus and then looking at these inflammatory markers using uh, protein. So collecting protein, doing Western blots. Um, I, there are some indications some preliminary data that shows that not necessarily even having an active virus, just having the virus in the cells um, can trigger some of those uh, inflammatory uh, markers to show up. Um, in addition to that, I also look in um, autophagy, or the, this is really how the cells clear out things they don't want anymore, molecules and, and, and so on. And so that's an important process because we know neurodegenerative diseases have, for example, uh, accumulation of certain proteins like tau and amyloid beta, those clumps that form in the brain. And we believe that those may be a result of you know, faulty uh, clearing of this protein. And once I expose the cells to the virus, we see uh, that that process is also uh, blocked. There's, there's a slowdown in the clearing of proteins um, from those cells. Uh, and then lastly, another thing that is important for neurodegenerative diseases is um, the ability to control the levels of reactive oxygen species. And so this is really connected to, you know, how everybody talks about antioxidants, right? Antioxidants are great, but we really want, we don't want a bunch of antioxidants. We really want an equilibrium like homeostasis of this uh, processes in the body. And we know that during neuro neurodegenerative diseases, these processes are not really regulated well. Um, and so I also did that where I look, I use flow cytometry, um, which is a process that, you know, you use single cells that go through lasers and you get a signal from that machine and you're able to tell uh, by changes in fluorescence um, if certain processes have changed or not. And so there is some indication that although there doesn't seem to be much change in reactive oxygen species on that oxidant antioxidant, you know, equilibrium, uh, it does seem that some of the function of uh, the mitochondria, which is an organelle that is very important for cells, particularly neuronal cells, because it produces energy, be some effect on the mitochondria, particularly the membrane potential. And I guess with this, you know, um, continue looking in this work is really um, understanding if the cell line is a good fit to study these questions, but also just kind of exploring the bigger idea of how herpes viruses in general, not necessarily just CBV, uh, but how viruses, long, long, lifelong viruses can affect uh, our bodies and prime cells, uh, put them in situations or in, in, in some sort of uh, effect processes that could lead to dysregulation and neurodegenerative diseases. Actually, I had a question. So do you think that the processes 
um, that you require active viral replication, or can you actually get some of the effects that you were describing when the virus is actually latent in cells? I think that we can get it when the virus, um, re I think a lot about reactivation, lytic reactivation, but even latency, I think it could trigger some of these responses because what I have seen is that even if the virus it's just the genome, the viral genome, the DNA is present in these cells. And even if I don't pick up any viral products, like there's no viral protein going on, uh, we know that cells do have a, a mechanism to recognize foreign DNA. And that mechanism will trigger inflammatory processes, triggers autophagy, can trigger reactive oxygen species. So I think that just the mere presence of the virus um, could trigger these things. So what's sort of the next steps? You have sort of some of this like preliminary data suggesting that you're seeing some of these signatures. What, what's sort of the next thing that you're going to do? So now I'm really interested in looking further into the autophagy and seeing if, for example, if we were to introduce um, amyloids, right, or tau, if those would be affected, if we, the cell would be able to clear them or not. Um, and in addition to that, dig in more into the inflammatory response to see, uh, tease out uh, which pathways of the inflammatory response are being activated. Uh, but what I would really like to do is, you know, not just with EBV, but just try a variety of viruses, really, because I, I really think this whole um, the whole idea of neurodegenerative diseases and 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 causes there's not going to be a single cause, right? What I think we will find eventually is that there are multiple ways to get there and there are multiple interactions that need to occur. Um, multiple things need to occur for you to end up with a certain disease. It's almost like a, a mosaic of, you know, has to come together. And so what I would really like to do is really just pick the pieces of not just EBV, but, you know, HSV1 and other herpes viruses and, and HIV and other viruses that we know and look at the processes that are common among them. And then maybe we can pinpoint things that they all, they're all doing and things that we can treat. And what are your thoughts about, so we do a lot of experiments in tissue culture, but obviously a lot of these processes in humans are actually in vivo. So what are your thoughts about sort of, you know, how do you take data that's generated in a tissue culture system and extrapolate to sort of in what might be happening in a person? How do you kind of make that connection? I think that the molecular basis, um, when we do cell culture, I think we get an idea of what could be happening, right? And then we need to move on to the next step. So maybe an animal model, right? Because then when the animal model, you have the entire, all the organ systems are there and things are interacting as you would expect. And, and then from there, we really can start thinking broader on, um, you know, maybe clinical applications and so on. Um, but even before we get to the mouse model, um, you know, we do have this really fancy uh, cell culture uh, techniques now where you can have a feeding layer of the cells that feed the neuronal cells and then the neuronal cells. So there's, we are really getting to a point where we have, um, we have a lot of options to really build a path to a clinical study. Right, right, right. Um 
And um, I guess uh, just sort of like more on a personal level, this has been sort of an unusual time to be a virologist. Um, so just sort of wondering or asking how the COVID pandemic has actually affected you, either both as a person and as a, as a scientist. So, yes, it has been, you know, virologists became very popular overnight. And it, the popular could be either in a good way or bad way, depends, right? And so um, I think that affected all of us, in, like you said, in personal and professional ways. Um, professionally, because I'm a PhD um, candidate, I'm still doing research, right? So that had to stop. And, and so that was, graduate school was already very nerve wracking, right? There's a lot that you're trying to get done. And, and, and then you put your, uh, the break, you can't go into the lab. And then personal life, you know, um, for me, I have, I'm married, I have uh, two teenage kids that went from 100 miles per hour to zero. And so having to deal with that, teaching them to cope or you're yourself coping with what's going on. And in the midst of all that, you know, you pepper in a little bit of social media where everybody is, or a lot of people are discrediting a lot of the things that we know as virologists that we firmly believe in, that we know that is solid science or, you know, and then you're trying to go in and, and, and really, um, just share your knowledge and share the things that you know, that you learn because you feel that is important. So it was really um, a balancing act and it was, it was nerve wracking at times. <laughs> and um, so are you starting to think to your next steps? So what happens like in a year or two after you graduate? Are you, what are you thinking of doing? So um, hopefully graduating in the spring, fingers crossed. Um, and I really, I really enjoy the idea of, you know, this multidisciplinary kind of work because my project is really neurobiology, virology, and immunology. So all these things are mashed in there. And um, I would really, I'm looking into getting into in industry or um, government. Uh, because I feel that would give me a better, um, I would I would get the chance to do more work in this kind of a multidisciplinary areas, but I would work with other people from, with people from completely different fields and explore a lot of, you know, different ideas. That That's what I like about science is the, the, the whole thing of, all right, here's a problem. How do we solve this? How do we go about this? Well, let's find out, you know, that's, that's my, my, favorite thing to do. And um, I, I, I thought about academia, but I don't know if I want to, you know, be with one single problem, you know, and, and, and the teaching and thinking of the, the, the track, the career, the, you know, the whole Tana track thing. Um, I'm an older student, you know, my kids are teenagers. I have one that's going to college next year. <laughs> and so, it's, you know, I don't know if both of us should be in college at the same time. So, or three of us, because then I have a 15 year old that will be in college soon. So I think that uh, I could be the industry or, or government job would be better suited for me. Right. Great. Um, well, it was nice talking to you. Um, I forgot to ask, are you talking about your work in the poster, uh, in, the, in the poster session at ASV? Yes, yes, I am. This is the work I, I have uh, on the poster. Not all of it, because some of the data is still uh, preliminary, but the autophagy 
um, some of the reactive oxygen species work is in there as well. Okay, great. Well, we look forward to that. And uh, thank you very much for uh, bearing with our technical difficulties and uh, talking with us today. Well, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to share my work. This has been Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about people who study viruses. This is your host, Larissa Thackray, and thanks for listening.